Welcome, and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of I Love Data Centers. I have with me here Alan Fagan, who is with EPS Global. And we met through a mutual friend of ours through Enterprise Ireland, which is one of the economic development arms for the, uh, the Republic of Ireland, and uh, who I've done work with over the last 15, 20 years or so. Um, and they have a, a trip coming up at the end of September, a, a conference for those of us in the industry to introduce us to a handful of the infrastructure companies that are coming out of Ireland and delivering services into the data center industry and who have been for, for a long time. Um, but before I dig into that and without further ado, uh, Alan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Uh, delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you. So. Um, I've been fascinated with uh, with Ireland. You know, I was born and raised in in the states, and uh, I've I've been told by my by my family and my grandparents that I have a lot of Irish Irish history. You know, my name is Sean Patrick, and so that kind of gives gives a lot away. Um, I've been to Ireland a few times and toured through all of Northern Ireland on a uh, a, a spring break trip in in college my sophomore year with a handful of friends, one of which who grew up in Northern Ireland, of which I recall very little. Uh, but uh, I've also been back there not too long ago, about 10 years ago, for a big family reunion where we spent about a, a week and a half touring all over Southern Ireland um, and got to visit all over the country and fell in love with just the uh, the people and the the spirits. Obviously, I think I've been through all the Bushmills and uh, Jameson distilleries in, in Ireland, both in Northern, Northern and Southern Ireland. Um, but uh, I, I really wanted to kick this podcast off to talk about a variety of things, but your perspective being a native uh, Irishman, having been born and raised there is very fascinating to me, um, especially uh, as it relates to the, the Celtic tiger. I actually did a, a thesis in college on, on the Celtic tiger and the history of Ireland and what has helped Ireland evolve over the, the last 30, 40 years um, as it relates to technology and all the innovation that's been going on there. But um, I'll be quiet now and just ask a simple question. You know, what was it like growing up? Where did you grow up? And how did you get yourself involved in, in tech in the first place, Alan? Yeah, uh, thanks, Sean, for the lead in there. I mean, it, 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 uh, it's fascinating for me, obviously, as well, the whole health tiger uh, phenomenon. And, you know, I would regard myself as being a real child of the, of the Celtic tiger. And, uh, you know, it, it had a mass, massive influence on, on my career. You know, I grew up in Dublin um, through the 70s and 80s. You know, at a time when the economy in Ireland was really in, in very, very rough shape. You know, we were dealing with unemployment rates in the range of like 20%. So there was very little opportunity in Ireland. I have five siblings. And in the late 1980s, I was actually the only one still in Ireland. They had scattered to the UK, to Australia, and here to the US. So things were pretty rough. Um, I, I remained in Ireland and I worked there. Uh, and at the time, any job was a, was a decent job. It was around the early 90s that I really noticed that uh, American multinationals started to uh, make their presence felt in Ireland and in, you know, around the Dublin area in particular, you know, with the likes of uh, Intel, uh, Gateway, Dell were down in Limerick. Those companies were starting to appear. Uh, it seemed to me that the, the culture within those companies was a little bit different to the incumbent Irish culture. You know, 
and I decided that uh, it was something that really interested me working for an American company. I felt what, like it, what was that that cultural difference? If you could pinpoint it, sure. Uh, Ireland, I felt, and you know, it could have been only my experience, but I, I felt that there was a, a culture of um, it, longevity. The long, if you could stay in a job for a while, you'd eventually get promoted. You know, it was. It, it didn't seem to be, to be a real meritocracy. Um, there weren't a lot of opportunities there. Uh, I felt like, from what I could hear about the American companies that were moving in, that if you were reasonably smart, willing to work very hard, you'd be given opportunities very, very quickly. And that really appealed to me. Now, at the time that I felt like I had something to offer, I wasn't able to find what I was looking for within indigenous, you know, Irish companies that didn't have a great education at the time so you know it was 94 I was a young married man and I really re- I had a job but I realized it wasn't going to allow me to do the things that I wanted to do so I started uh, looking for work with some of the American companies that came in and uh, I applied for a job with a company called Avid Technology AVID who make editing systems uh, so they basically invented non-linear digital editing, and they had their uh, still do actually have their European manufacturing headquarters in Dublin. And you know the difference in culture became apparent to me really, really quickly. It was actually at the interview stage. Now I, I interviewed first uh, with an Irish guy, and then I met the uh, director of manufacturing there for the second interview. And again, if you think back to a context of Ireland where at the time and you know, shortly before it, there was a 20% unemployment rate, you know, you'd fall across glass to get a job. But when I was interviewed by this guy, the director of manufacturing, it was the first time in my life where I felt that he was actually trying to sell the job to me. He really wanted me to work there. So that was a, you know, a, 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 an interesting dynamic from my perspective. So I, I went to work for Avid Technology and I worked in... Um, inventory and in uh you know managing the warehouse for them and so i started with avid in 1995 but i quickly moved into a procurement role and you know all the stuff that i imagined that would happen with working for an american company really happened you know i showed initiative and i was given opportunities and i was given opportunities to grow but um it was actually while working in that procurement role for avid that i first came across uh, eps global so this is, you know, going forward like a few years to 1999. One of the things that I was trying to do while I was in Dublin was to really localize the supply base. I was spending, you know, about $30 million on servers and um, workstations and, you know, miscellaneous parts. And most of that money was being spent in the U.S. And, you know, the parts were being flown into Ireland for us to, you know, assemble these editing systems. So I really wanted to develop a local supply base for loads of reasons, you know, for selfish reasons of having the inventory close by, but also, you know, developing the local economy and giving more people opportunities like I had. And I was actually introduced to EPS at that time and they became a supplier for us. And um, actually at one of the meetings, so, uh, you know, we'd have regular meetings and I had a Finisar component. So Finisar make optical transceivers. And I asked uh, Chris, who I actually work for now, uh, if he was able to source this Finisar product for us. And uh, Chris reached out to Finisar, and EPS Global became Finisar's first ever distributor. And, you know, it became a very important part of EPS's business. And it actually a very important part of Finisar's business as well. But that meeting at the time was not that significant to me. and. You know, about six months later, after that, I, I was offered a job um, by Avid uh, in corporate headquarters here in Massachusetts. And I came over in uh, June of 2000. So that's how I ended up in the U.S. Gotcha. And, um, you know, worked for Avid for several years here in the U.S. So let's, but let's before we get into your story in the U.S., let's go back, back to Ireland. Because I think... Yeah. Um, the story of the Celtic tiger is fascinating to me um, in part because I spent a long time studying it and I, I'm a lover of the country. Um, 
But for those who don't know, like what what is that? What were the initiatives and the the vision and the foresight that uh, the the government really at the end of the day had uh, that helped breed the culture um, that fostered the likes of Dell and Gateway and all these companies and Intel to to build big offices in in Ireland? Yeah, I mean, there's no single answer to that. I think that there there are numerous things that contributed to that, uh, and I I would say the seeds of it were sown in the 1960s when uh, free secondary education was introduced. And secondary education for people in the US who are listening, that's like high school. So up until that point, you you know, most uh, people would have to pay for a secondary school education in Ireland. So it wasn't accessible to the vast majority of the population. So people were leaving school at 14 or 15 years of age. So I think the the education system, first of all, played played a, a big part. The fact that people were getting you know a, a proper education. I think also the EU had a massive, massive uh, impact on it. You know the fact that uh, U.S. companies setting up in Ireland had access not just to the very tiny Irish market, but to the massive EU market. That played a huge part. You know in that. Um, I think the improvement in infrastructure in Ireland based on membership of the EU also played a part. Um, you know, tax initiatives by the by the government, uh, the work of the likes of Enterprise Ireland and uh, IDA, who were the um, Industrial Development Authority, they played played an impact in attracting that investment. But I also think that there's cultural elements to it. You know, Ireland is an English-speaking country. So it's and it's also the, the the ties between the U.S. and Ireland are very strong, and I can tell you from experience that uh, you know American managers who were in Ireland working for Abbott they enjoyed their time there, and they they fit into the culture very easily. And I think Irish people were very welcoming, and I think that the uh, that, that all those elements played a part in you know producing the Celtic Tiger phenomenon. Yeah. The the other interesting thing about it is that you know it it changed over years, and I, I would say changed in a good way, in that you know the initial uh, entry there by the likes of Dell and Gateway, it was really you know another big element of it was that Ireland was a low cost manufacturing area at the time, that they could have uh, PCs assembled in Ireland at an economical rate because, you know, the rates of pay were not that high and they could get, you know, a, a workforce. That's evolved over time. Ireland is no longer a low-cost manufacturing base. Ireland is a center of technology. So the companies that are in Ireland now that are, you know, have their headquarters, European headquarters there, the likes of Facebook, Google, Twitter, they're not there because it's a low-cost manufacturing area. They're there because they have a pool of highly educated, highly effective workers available to them there. So the low-cost manufacturing is gone, but the technology jobs, there's more of them than ever, but they're at a higher level and, you know, development-type work as well. And as I understand it, one of the uh, the pieces that ties into the secondary education um, that you mentioned is a focus within that secondary education on STEM, um, so science, technology, engineering, um, and math. Do you, did you see that growing up through through the school system? No. That, that, that was not the case uh, when I was growing up. So I would have been in uh, high school in the early 80s. You know, there was STEM education available, but it was not. I, I think it's, it's at a higher, much higher level now than it, than it would have been. Gotcha. And I think, you know, you know, the impact of the, you know, of the 1960s was just broadly in having a general education and, and just, you know, instilling a culture where education was valued and available to people. Yeah, and the um, the other interesting thing in the Bay Area. So I was in the Bay Area from '98 until January 2016. But in the mid 2000s, I was working with Enterprise Ireland on a regular basis, uh, helping to introduce Irish businesses into the local Silicon Valley uh, data center infrastructure ecosystem, uh, touring them through facilities, walking them through the technologies that they had, and introducing them to relevant partners in in that area and competitors in some cases so that they could see, you know, in some cases it, it was the case that, you know, what the Irish businessmen thought that they had was a unique idea had already been established here in the States for many years. Um, right. 
But uh, one of the funnest things that I did was a, an organization working with an organization called Patty's Valley. And it was taking about 20 entrepreneurs from Ireland and bringing them over into Silicon Valley and touring them through Facebook and touring them through Yahoo at the time and Google and all these companies that were very new uh, and, and just starting right. to get legs underneath them and blowing their minds. And they took a lot of those contacts and connections and um, you know, some of them raised money while they were over here and, and brought that back and built those businesses. Some of them set up offices in Silicon Valley. It was a lot of fun. Um, and it's, uh, it's a relationship that I had a lot of, uh, built a lot of great relationships with, and I'm glad to still be part of it today, but getting back to, to your story, I apologize the, the tangent there. Um, yeah, but enterprise Ireland, I think that's where I wanted to go. Enterprise Ireland is a pretty fascinating institution. Um, they've got, I think, like four or five offices across the United States, one in Silicon Valley, one up in the Northeast. Um, I think there's one in, you probably would know better than I, but I think there's one in Dallas, Texas, um, some, somewhere down in Texas. But anyway, it's their whole job is to take those businesses in Ireland, right, and give them opportunities. It's kind of like a consulate office here in the States yeah, for, yeah. And for those businesses. They, you know, they, they've done an outstanding job in helping us globally. You know, EPS Global was founded in Dublin. You know, we now are in 29 different global locations. And I think that uh, the help that we've received from um, Enterprise Ireland has been invaluable. And, you know, again, w without the likes of Enterprise Ireland and IDA, I would not be sitting here. I would not be doing what I'm doing. The IDA, uh, you know, like the inward investment arm, uh, they were instrumental in setting Avid up. And I can vividly remember, um, uh, you, you know, meetings going on between Avid and IDA uh, in, in terms of getting up and running in Ireland. And they're still there. They're still employing people in Ireland. And they've... You know, with the likes of me, who I regard myself as an alumni of Avid, worked there and learned a lot about the tech industry there. And, you know, it's sort of gone full circle now where I'm back working for an Irish company and, again, helping to uh, drive that technology. So you came to the States and landed in Boston, right? Correct, yeah. So at the time, um, Avid uh, were headquartered in a town called Tewksbury in Massachusetts. So uh, that's where I ended up. And I, mo I moved over at the time. Um, you know, my wife and three young children, a nine-year-old, four-year-old, and a two-year-old. So we uh, put sticks and left, you know. So it was, uh, it was quite the move. But uh, at the time, it was for a two-year assignment. So we could have gone back after the two years, back to, back to Dublin. Um, I always had in the back of my mind that it could be something that we'd look at doing, you know, longer term. So, you know, we extended three years and then uh, they asked me to stay permanently and uh, I agreed. So, you know, we went through the whole process of, I, I, I came over originally on what they call an L1 visa, which is designed for U.S. multinationals to be able to uh, move managers from overseas to corporate and uh, Avid then sponsored me for a green card. So we went through that whole process. So right I've on. been here you know, with, with my family for 18 years now. So uh, you know, we've gone through the whole citizenship process, all that, all that stuff. Right on. So one of the things that I'd love to dig into here that I find, you know, it's part of the, one of the many things that I love, you know, why I love data centers is uh, yeah. the work that you do and the um, industry that you you know, that you work within is in the data center space. I mean, you're in the data center industry, but the terminology yeah. for what you play with and the mechanics and the mechanicals and the, the technology yeah. that you work on a daily basis is so drastically different than the stuff that I deal with on a regular basis. Right. It, right. It's just kind of proof that there's so many different rabbit holes that you can go down in the no, data center they're, world. They're, 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 they're really are, Sean. And, and I, you know, I think that there's, 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 to me, there's two real distinct areas in the data center and for some reason uh they don't seem to talk to each other a whole lot and you know i discovered this as i started to go to you know trade events here in, in the in the data center space you have one side of the wall is the infrastructure guys who are doing the heating and the cooling all, all that type of stuff right and you know facilities all all that side and then on the other side are the networking guys 
And you know, one way to think about it is within the rack and then outside the rack. So the, the, the piece of the business that we're really involved in is inside the rack in the data center. It's the um, top of rack switch, the cables, the optics, all that type of stuff, as opposed to like the infrastructure, right? The cooling and all that. So do you know, do you have any data around the size of, of that industry? Because, you know, I've got metrics on the data center industry in terms of power and space and the real estate uh, and, yeah. the, you know, those that are publicly traded. Um, but what's always fascinated me is how many more billions upon billions of dollars are spent on all the infrastructure that goes inside the data center. And yeah. just for you know some context here, when I first started working in the industry out of the 200 Paul Digital Realty Trust data center in South San Francisco, what was interesting was the value of that property. But was more interesting to me is I think the value of that property at the time was somewhere around like 800 million or close to a billion dollars, and that you know. That blew my mind. And, you know, 400,000 square foot data center was pretty impressive um, to be worth that much. But when I started calculating how much money worth of hardware, and as you were saying, the switches and the the routers and all the related infrastructure, the cabling, it ended up being tens of billions of dollars of infrastructure inside there. Um, And it really put a lot of things in perspective to me. Right. So, I mean, if you you think about it in terms of, let's just think about one uh, one company who's active in that space, right, uh, would be Cisco, right? They would be one of the largest players in that space. Uh, you know, they're, I'm, I'm just looking here uh, online, their market cap is $217 billion. Okay, their revenue uh, for is close to $50 billion. Yeah. So that will give you some context. That's one player in the hardware space. You know, and if, you, so, if you think if you, if you think about you know a, a a data center rack, right? So it might have a switch that's a top of rack switch that's in there. Uh, that's you know could be five to ten thousand dollars. But the real value is in like the optical components that are then inserted into that switch. You know, those optical components can be north of $1,000 each, depending on, you know, the speed and the distance they want to cover. Multiply that by 48 for a 48-port switch. You know, you're suddenly talking about real money. You know, multiply that by the number of racks that are actually in the data center. It's it's a massive, massive, massive market. And it's getting bigger all the time. You know, we all know, you know, we carry around in our pockets now you know, the uh, the phones, the amount of data that's being gathered just by, you know, you're shooting a picture and sending it to Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, that's going through all this infrastructure. Right. And you guys, as EPS specifically, is as a distributor, are you manufacturing any of this? I think you, you mentioned no. that. Yeah. No, we, we, we don't manufacture at all. So we represent companies who make the, make the equipment. And, and we're very specifically targeted. So, you know, really what's happened over the last number of years in the data center space. So I mentioned Cisco there just as an example of, you know, the type of revenue that's involved here. But there's been a move away from the OEM, you know, the original equipment manufacturer in the data center space. Okay. If we think of the hyperscale data centers that are out there. So people, the likes of Facebook, Apple, Google, Amazon, they are not and have not for a number of years built their data centers using OEM architecture, you know, using someone like a Cisco or an Arista or a Juniper. You know, what they figured out a number of years ago was that they could do a much better job in building that network infrastructure themselves. You know, going straight to Taiwan to the ODMs of switches, so that the guys who are actually manufacturing the switches, uh, the people who are actually manufacturing the opticals, uh, the optics, going there, buying them direct from the factory, and then using their engineering resources then to design and build the data centers, okay? And by doing that, they were able to build much more efficient data centers and also save a lot of money. So, you know, in the marketplace then, there there is a move now to build data centers more along those lines and to get away from the traditional closed architecture of the OEMs. And that's where SDN comes in, you know, software-defined networking. Now, the challenge in, you know, like a tier two data center is that 
you know, these guys don't have the army of engineers that a Facebook or a Google or a Microsoft have to throw at these problems and to build the data centers themselves. So what they rely on then are vendors of software that will allow them to build like that. So you have companies like Big Switch, Cumulus, uh, Pluribus, IP Infusion, um, who are active in that space. But using that software gives these guys the ability then to use what we call, for want of a better word, commodity hardware. That's that's one of the most interesting things that I see going on in the industry. You know, you mentioned Cisco, and we were talking about them and and how many billions of dollars in revenue they have. Um, but they're now billing themselves as a software company, not a hardware company. Um, well, so well, they you know what's happening there, Sean, is they're reading the writing on the wall. Right. right? They're seeing the direction that this is going, and they're understanding that they have a problem. Okay, and you know they have built an extremely successful business, and they've made great hardware margins you know, over the years. Um, but, you know, they see that the, direct, the, the direction that this market is going. And I think they're reacting to that. Yeah. So related to that and, and tying in the SDN piece, in the arena that you play in, which is the components that make up the, the physical infrastructure inside the data center. Yeah. There's been a ton of innovation going on in that space that's allowing companies yep. to do a lot more with a lot less. Can you, Correct. you could probably do a hell of a lot better job than I can, but it, you know, walk us through how, how things have evolved in that space over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Okay, I'll try. And it's actually, it, it, it's much more in the last five years, I would say, than in the last 10 to 15 years, to be huh. honest with you. Because the, uh, uh, the innovation yeah, and the speed of innovation it has really accelerated over the last number of years. Uh, it was, uh, you know, we, we've, we, we've seen a lot of it in the server world over the, la over the last decade and, and more, you know, virtualization and VMware and all the rest. But the networking space was actually quite uh, static and, you know, there wasn't a lot of innovation, but it's really started happening over the last number of years. And, uh, you know, I think basically what's happening is, and it, it, you know, there's numerous definitions of SDN, but to me, simply, it's separating the control plane from the forwarding plane and really centralizing control of the network, okay? And what that means is that, it, you know, in a traditional uh, environment, you would have the, the, the control would be in each individual switch. So you, you deploy, you know, a thousand switches in the network. Each one of them has software on it and has, you know, for want of a better term, the brains in the switch. What SDN is doing, and if we think of somebody like a big switch, so big switch are a software vendor uh, in this space. The reason they call themselves big switch is that they allow you to treat 500 switches like one big switch. So they, they have a server, which is basically the controller of the network, and the switches then become... They are just, you know, all they are doing is forwarding the data. None of the decision-making is happening within that switch. So it makes it far, far easier uh, to make changes and to deploy because it's a central control rather than it being distributed to every single switch in the network. Gotcha. So how about from a mechanical perspective? So, for, for example, um, I've learned, I learned a long time ago that the limiting factor for throughput, right, um, yeah. is not the glass itself. So the fiber optics themselves, uh, it's actually the devices that are sending and receiving, mostly receiving that data right. that's going across the glass. And so I, I've right. heard so, that there's a uh, lot of innovation so, going on in that space no, as uh, well. The, the, no, there the, the absolutely is. Uh, you know, and really what's happening there is that, you know, the, the, the speeds, it's getting, the, the data rates are increasing all the time. And, you know, we go from one gig to 10 gig to 40 gig, you know, now 100 gig is becoming more and more prevalent. It's very soon going to be 400 gig. So from, from that perspective, yes, there's absolutely innovation you know, in, in that space. But what you have to remember is that, you know, the innovation is coming from companies like Broadcom, right? They own a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the, the switch market. They're the internal, you know, chips on the switch. But it doesn't matter if you're buying, you know, what brand of switch that you're buying. The likelihood is that the innards of it will contain a Broadcom switch or a, sorry, a Broadcom chip. So, the, the, the way traditionally that switches have been differentiated is has been the software on them. 
this whole concept that SDN is removing that, that the hardware is just the hardware. The real difference is in the software. So, you know, a, a bare metal switch is exactly what it says. It's just a switch, no, no software on it. And then you use the, you know, the SDN software then from a big switch, cumulus, pluralist, as the controller of the network. Has your space um, and these components seen the same type of price compression occurring as a lot of the other components and bandwidth and, and even cost per KW and cost for, for space and power in this, in the industry. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we see is that the, the traditional uh, curve in terms of cost, right? If I, if I think back, if I think of, you know, 10 gig uh, optical transceiver. So ba basically to simplify this, an optical transceiver is really what sends the data around you know, internally in the data center and then from data center to data center, okay? And what it is, it's, it is a device, it's called a transceiver because it both transmits and receives, okay? So on the transmit side, what it does is it turns an electrical signal into a light signal, shoots it along a fiber optic cable, and on the other side you have, it does the receive piece, so it receives that light signal, changes that into an electrical signal. On, on that end, okay? If I think of the, the, the price curve on, you know, five years ago, a 10 gig transceiver, you know, a couple of hundred dollars, you know, now $40 you can get it for, okay? But what has happened in the meantime is that the 10 gig demand is going down and we're starting to see more demand for the 100 gig. So, you know, the 100 gig is on the high end of the price curve, but that will go down over time and it'll be taken over by the 400 gig. And, you know, there, there, there is no limit. I mean, I can remember starting work in the tech industry at, at Abbott, and we were selling, you know, nine gig drives by the thousand load for video and audio. And at the time, a nine gig drive, we're talking about, you know, 1995, a nine gig drive would have been $5,000. And it would have been hard to imagine why anyone would ever want more than nine gig because for the amount of uh, information that you could store on it. Now, you know, we carry more than that around on our thumb drive because the amount of data that's out there is increasing all the time. And if you think of video, you know, it's not standard def anymore. It's not even high def anymore. It's 4K. So the amount of storage space that's needed for that and the amount of bandwidth to broadcast that is huge. Hmm. So this is, it's not going anywhere. You know, the, 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 it's going to be an increasing, which is, I'm sure it's good news. Anybody who's listening to this is interested in data center space. So it's good news for all of us that this is not going anywhere. We're, we're only going to see an increase in the, you know, the data required, the, the, you know, the size of the pipes for moving the data. I mean, I, I, I see it in my own everyday life. You know, having moved from Ireland 18 years ago, I was totally separated from what was going on in there. Big sports fan, very interested in following the sports from home. It was impossible to, to watch any of it because, uh, you know, particularly online, there just wasn't the, the speeds available. Now I can watch it online, a paper service. I can stream it online because the technology is there to, to uh, allow that. And, that, you know, the pipes are big enough for, for carrying the content. One of the other questions I had for you that's somewhat related is I would imagine the types of buyers has also evolved on your end. Um, which you know we, we see on our end where you have fewer and fewer companies that are in the banking space or healthcare or insurance or you know name any uh, law firms who used to have massive internal IT departments and would have to try to gain that expertise in house who are starting to realize that their core competency is not IT and so they're right. leveraging more and more managed service providers who have that expertise in house so I would only imagine that the same type of dynamic is occurring on your end where the people who are buying this infrastructure are less and less the individual corporations who um, are running businesses and more and more the, the hosting companies and managed service providers and uh, cloud providers, um, the hyperscalers. Yeah, th there's a, a mixture of both, Sean, to be honest with you. You know, there's always the man from the, the, the hyperscale guys, right? And they buy in bulk. But there's also, you know, there, there, there's a, a feeling, and I've had conversations with people where they feel everything is moving to the cloud. So that makes our job really, uh, you know, very, very difficult uh, trying to sell to anyone other than the cloud providers. We find that's not necessarily the case. 
you know, what we see happening is that people have a hybrid infrastructure uh, policy where they will move what they can to the cloud, but they want to keep quite a bit of this stuff on premise as well. If you think of a, you know, a financial institution or an enterprise, uh, they don't want to put everything out on the cloud. They need to have their arms around some of the data. And I think particularly in the day and age that we live in, and you know the security concerns that people have for very good reasons. Uh, people want to have a lot of this in house, so we still see a lot of business uh, through that through the enterprise. The way that we go to market as EPS Global is we actually work with resellers for the most part, rather than going direct to an end user. So there's still lots of resellers that are active in this space, and we partner with them, and uh, you know they would work with the end users. But we still see a massive, massive market. Uh, for data center products outside of the, the hyperscale and cloud guys. Going back to the evolution and, and innovation that's occurred in the, in the industry, like where do you see things continuing to go? Like in five years from now, what are we going to be looking at versus what we have today? Well, we've made a bet that the SDN piece is really what's going to drive the growth in this business. Um, we made that bet three years ago. We re realized that uh, this is the direction that it's going. You know, and, and there's the classic hockey stick, you know, which we, the term that we use here in the US where, you know, we have a growth curve, a very steep growth curve. We feel that we're still in the SDN space, we're still really at the bottom of that growth curve. We've been active in this space for a number of years. Um, most of what we've shipped has been you know, what we call try and buy. People are buying a small number of switches, they're deploying this, you know, really to test it, just to see, you know, is this gonna work? Uh, we see a shift uh, from try and buys now into production. And that's where the real payoff we feel is gonna be. That instead of somebody buying four or five switches to try this out and to put in a couple of racks, they're gonna put in, they're gonna put basically make it the data center infrastructure. So it's hundreds, if not thousands of switches and all the components that go with that. Yeah, and related to this whole topic and conversation um, with the analysis that we do on our end uh, and the research that we do, we've come to the conclusion and have fully bought into and, and will back and vehemently defend uh, the reality that the continued evolution that has been occurring resulting in bigger pipes that can transmit more data faster um, and the evolution of CPU, right? Where we, we can process yeah. more data faster. All that's yeah. doing, you know, so some people will try to argue that that's gonna reduce the footprint needed uh, and that the demand for data centers yeah. is gonna shrink over time. We yeah. think that it's, it's the exact opposite because by right. creating those, uh, those bigger pipes and the ability to process more, all you're doing is creating new innovation or applications that can leverage those bigger pipes. Um, well, and, you know, history, history has proven that, you know? Again, if, if you think of how we, how we live our lives now, and I mentioned it earlier on about, you know, taking pictures, taking videos, posting them to Twitter, posting them to Instagram, who could have imagined we'd be doing that 15 or 20 years ago? You, yeah, I, you I take I, it to you, the you next phase. Anyway, because yeah, right. you or I didn't because, uh, you know, we'd be sitting in Mark Zuckerberg's office if we did, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it, it used to be like 10 years ago, they had the technology, Cisco had the technology such that you could have a, a conversation like that looked almost real and live, uh, like Star Wars type technology um, with someone in your office, but the only people who could afford it had to spend like quarter, three quarters of a million dollars for the devices on each end and the, right. the network capability between the two. And now we have the ability to do that for just a couple thousand dollars versus three quarters of a million dollars. Um, so I think well, that, in, that type of technology yeah, is going to make you it. you have the ability, yeah. you know, with the phone that we carry around in our pockets of doing right. a lot of that. You know, right. when, when I think about, um, you know, I talked about working at Abbott and we made, you know, editing systems. Well, back then, when I started there in 1995, and I, you know, I'm going to sound like one of these old guys now, but you know, back then, a media composer was $100,000 at least. You know, now, I could do as much editing on my phone as that 
system would have allowed you to do back then. You know, and I think sometimes we we we, we tend to take this stuff for granted. You know, the 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 uh, ability that we have, you know, particularly to communicate compared to what was available years ago. And uh, you know, it's funny work, working in this space. I, I I find it sometimes that you know, and and being involved in the physical infrastructure, there's so many misconceptions out there around how this stuff works or how it doesn't work. And I think part of it is, you know, some of the, the terminology that we use. You know, people talk about the cloud. And I think that the, the the perception is that you send an email from your phone and somehow magically this stuff disappears into a cloud and shows up then where it's supposed to be. That's not the way it works. You know, there's a physical thing happening and there's a physical infrastructure behind all that. And that's what we do. Yeah, amen, hallelujah, man. I've been, I've been preaching that for... Many, 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 many years that there's no such thing as cloud. There's actual right, right. physical it, it, infrastructure. It, it, yeah. I, I, read, I read a book a number of years ago that I, I thought had a really interesting perspective on it. And I encourage people to, to read it. It's a book called uh, Tubes by yep. a guy called Andrew Bloom. And uh, he's a joint, it's, 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 it's a technical book, but it's, it's, it's written in a very readable way. So you don't have to be a real technical guy, but it, it explores that the whole physical infrastructure. And it's very interesting because, you know, when I say to people, well, there's still a ship crossing the Atlantic, you know, rolling a cable out along the bottom of the sea. They're amazed. They go, what? People think that's, you know, back in the old days, that's still what happens. You know, the fiber mm-hmm. optic cables laid on the bottom of the sea. And that's how this stuff travels around. But it, it makes you think a little bit differently about, you know, this whole space and, and how it works, because there is, there's a physical thing happening. There are bits and bytes that are, you know, physical that are being transmitted that allow, you know, the email that I send now to show up on somebody else's desk 3,000 miles away within a couple of seconds, that there is something actually traveling, that it doesn't just happen magically. So what are the other topics I wanted to ask you about? Because I assume that you need to go back to Ireland every couple of months for, for business. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, um, typically uh, once a quarter. So, given that you, you've seen Ireland evolve drastically over the yep. last thirty years um, yep. and move, as you said, from a, a cheap manufacturing um, and basically call center type of economy to a much more um, high tech, hands on, uh, innovative uh, technological community and, and location. Yes. Where do you where do you think it's going to continue to evolve, and how do you think it's going to continue to evolve, and what what might be some of the hurdles for continued innovation? Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen the, the biggest changes I've seen are in, in Dublin. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Dublin. I grew up right, you know, in the heart of Dublin. Um, I could walk to O'Connell Street, you know, which is this you know center of Dublin, fifteen minutes from the house that I grew up in. Um, I still spend time at that house. My mom is still there. And um, Dublin ha- has completely transformed, I think, particularly over the last 20 years. Um, it's a far more cosmopolitan city than it was. And again, that that's built on the fact that there's been, you know, for the first time um, in hundreds of years, there was net immigration into Ireland in that there were more people you know, arriving than leaving. And that's driven by the economy, okay? It's driven by the likes of Twitter and Facebook setting up European ter- teams in Dublin. Um, I, I see that evolution continuing. I think there's a, there's a critical mass that's been reached there that there's, you know, the, these type of custom companies tend to cluster in an area. They, they're clustering in Dublin. I think the evolution will continue. I think one thing that I worry about is that it's, so centered on Dublin and the rest of the country is getting left behind from that. And I, I, I'm concerned about the, you know, the infrastructure in Dublin being able to keep up with what's going on there. And, is, uh, you know, yeah. So I was there about 10 years ago um, when there was a, a ridiculous amount of construction going on and there was, yeah. you know, Screens everywhere. Um, and then I think it was right before the 2008, 2009 crash 
right? The the yeah. real estate crash, and I know that that economy was was hurt hit hard by by that um, yeah. shift. Um, yeah. Have have things rebounded from then? Are those buildings they, now they, filling back up and more more development going on? Th- things have rebounded. I mean, that was a very very difficult time, and I think it still is. Uh, you know, it, it, it's still in recovery from that. And I talked about you know there being net immigration into Ireland, but I think mm-hmm. a- after that crash of two thousand and eight two thousand and nine, you know, a lot of people again were forced to emigrate which was a very sad time, right? Because we felt that we'd let those days behind us, right? And that, that people who were leaving Ireland were more like me. It was like a, a choice rather than I have to go because I, have, I can't make a living here. So we, we went back to that situation for a number of years. I think things are turning around now. Things are improving. I think, um, you know, a, a, a problem that we're starting to see raise its ugly head again over there is uh, house prices, people being able to afford to live there and also, um, you know, rents going right through the roof. And I think it would be remiss as well, not to mention that, that uh, you know, those type of things happening, it, 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 it doesn't lift all boats. There are lots of people there who, who don't work in the technology industry and haven't been able to take advantage of the, uh, you know, the uptick. And I'd love to see, you know, ways being explored to, to ensure that more and more people are able to do that. Yeah. I think San Francisco and many other cities in the U S and probably around the world, they're dealing with the same, same dynamic, um, Raleigh even, which is where I am. And I I moved out here about two and a half years ago from the Bay area, um, is seeing a similar dynamic, but part of the reason why I chose, Raleigh, and I'm curious if I'm very much looking forward to getting back to Dublin here next month um, and asking these types of questions. But part of what drew me to Raleigh is the fact that there's such a diverse economy here. You have so many different yeah. universities. You have the the state capital and all the uh, the economy that supports the state capital. Um, you've got tech. You've got bio. You've got pharma. You've got such a diverse uh, economy. And I looked at the the charts and the numbers on how Raleigh was affected by the 2008 crash and the 2001 crash. And there was, it was definitely affected, but nowhere near the, the, the seismic uh, uh, change that occurred in other, other sectors and other cities that were so heavily tech focused. Right. Right. And did um, in Boston, I would assume that Boston is an extremely, diverse economy up there and in fact um have you been through uh god i gotta look it up now but there's a data center right downtown that's one of the most oh yeah uh, markley markley group uh, yeah exactly i, I know yes. it well yes one uh summer street yes uh, I, I know it well i've been i've been there a number of times and uh I've taken people on tours there uh, yeah mark sullivan actually so I, I i'm up in a town called andover which is about a half an hour north but uh, one of the guys there, uh, Mark Sullivan, who runs marketing for Markley, uh, I know him well. He lives up around here, and we've, I've been through the data center uh, numerous times, and it's 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 a, an incredible facility. It and really again, is. You, you know, people are unaware, and I think for a reason they're unaware that it's there. Right. So, so you're familiar with the building, right? There's a Macy's in the ground floor, right? And then on top of that, there's a million square foot of data center space. But anybody walking through town is not aware that that's what is actually there. Right. And I can honestly say I've toured through about 400 data centers now in the U.S. And that is one of the top three facilities that I've been through of just simply the most impressive. And it stems from, I believe, uh, that the owner, you know, Jeff Markley, is so passionate about that facility and about that building and wanting to have best of breed everything. Um, that you walk around and it's just impressive. You can tell that he truly loves, <laughs> loves that facility and loves what the capabilities are of it and invests in it. And it's a dichotomy. I, I, yeah. 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 I, I 100% agree. And they are delighted to show it off. They want yeah. people coming in to, to, yeah. to showcase it. Yeah, the f- they, they've actually uh, opened a sister facility in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, which is not too far from here. Huh? So uh, I haven't been to it yet, but I would assume that it's to the same standard as, uh, you know, as one summer. Yeah. Yeah. I went through that facility. I went through the, I believe it was the core site 
data center that was right outside of, of the downtown area. But um, I love Boston. So do, 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 you, yeah. do you find yourself when, you, when you're driving around, you know, in different areas trying to pick out which, which building is the data center? You know, yeah, it's not hard for me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that and I, you know, before I came into the industry, um, I never really noticed substations, right? And right, just the, right. the power infrastructure. And now I can look at yeah. a building and just look at very quickly for the infrastructure, the HVACs, the generators, um, right. and the power infrastructure that's coming in. And you can kind of very quickly size up what may, may be going on inside that building. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Is there is there anything else that we haven't touched upon? I mean, what? Uh, how big is EPS? I'd love to learn more about just the company. Yeah. So, from from a physical point of view, you know, uh, location wise, we have um, like twenty nine global locations, but I, I'd still regard us as being a reasonably small company. You know, we have a couple of hundred employees worldwide. But we're global in the space that we, in the sense that we have, you know, numerous locations throughout the U.S., uh, Mexico, Brazil, then you know, corporate headquarters in Dublin, where you know we service um, all of EMEA, and then numerous locations in China as well. So uh, we have a very, very broad global footprint. Um, but the good news is that as a, as a, again, a relatively small company. Uh, the, the, my counterparts in the different geos, I know them. I know them by name. So getting things done is is, is very easy. We still really have a small company feel about us. Um, you know, we have an operations center in Indianapolis, so everything for the U.S. market we ship out of there. And uh, you know, our, again, our focus really is into this network infrastructure space. You know, we, we try to carry the best in breed in, in terms of the commodity hardware space and work with the software providers to be, you know, their, the, the hardware piece of this solution. You know, what we discovered when we started uh, looking at SDN was that in many ways, we felt that the hardware procurement piece of this was dysfunctional in that, you know, what the software guys would do in a lot of cases is they'd have what's called, uh, you know, an AVL or an approved vendor list. So they'd give a customer a list of hardware that's qualified to work on the software. So from the customer's point of view, quite a difficult situation. First of all, they have to select the hardware. There might be numerous choices. Then once they've done that, they have to try and figure out where they're going to go and buy this hardware. Well, you know, what we look to do is to remove all that complexity and to, you know, to, to be the hardware solution for that software load the software, recreate the OEM experience. So who, who are some of the major buyers for you guys? So again, it, it's a, we typically work through a reseller channel. Um, the biggest market for us in this space, uh, you know, the end user markets will be like the likes of enterprise data centers. So, uh, you know, companies that are running their own internal data centers, they might be in the manufacturing area. They could be in, um, finance you know it's, it's really across the board but that's where we see the biggest opportunity it's like you know it's not the hyperscale guys it's more the tier two so it's someone with a corporate data center that is you know looking for this product but you know there, there's areas outside of the data center where this uh you know this way of building network infrastructure is starting to penetrate as well if we think of you know retail stores who have a requirement for you know networking throughout their store network uh that's sdm starting to penetrate that as well mm -hmm. you know, so there's other areas that we're starting to see success gotcha well how how ellen if people want to get a hold of you how can they get a hold of you um should i get my email address hey whatever whatever you're comfortable with <laughs> yeah i'll give my email my email address is a Fagan, so it's A-F-A-G-A-N at epsglobal.com. Um, I'll give out my phone number as well if people feel like giving me a call. It's 978-930-1492. And, uh, you know, as you can probably tell, I could talk all day on this subject, so I'm happy to discuss it with anybody who wants to give me a call, have a chat about it. If, you know, if they feel there's some way that we as EPS Global can help out in uh, some project they're doing. You know, we have technical expertise on our staff as well 
that's very well versed in you know both the software and the hardware involved in this. So we can be a valuable resource to anybody who's interested in learning more. And I'm happy to share knowledge with uh, you know anyone who wants to reach out. I appreciate that, and we'll put that info on the show notes along with the link to your uh, your LinkedIn profile if people want to connect right. with you there. Yeah, um, perfect. And then the last question that I ask all all my uh, my interview ease is do you love data centers oh i adore data centers <laughs> <laughs> well i appreciate well, your here, time so get, get, given given that we have uh uh you know an irish element to this it's small loan data centers yeah there we go i uh you know on that note funny enough i spent about a year learning gaelic um and learned a, a handful of different phrases and sayings and and whatnot. Um, uh, uh, say it again. Kunasatatu. Um, I don't even fucking remember. I apologize. <laughs> I don't even remember how I responded to that. Said, how are you doing? I know you asked me, how are you doing? There you um, go. So, yeah. So, you got that anyway. So, Tom Egema, I am good. Tom Egema. Um, there were so many things. Sorry, that have sorry been to in put my me on the spot memory. there, Sean. No, it's all good. It's all good. I, I should actually, you remind me now, I should brush up on my Gaelic before I head back over to Ireland. In fact, that's probably what I'll oh, do yeah. on the flight. Yeah, um, can, is it you true? Endear, you probably know this. You can, you can is it true that you can't work audience. for the government without knowing Gaelic? So knowing Gaelic and, uh, you know, being able to speak it, I would say are two different things, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's compulsory in school to learn Gaelic. People will call it Irish rather than Gaelic, right? So I think that, yes, you would need to have passed the exam in that, but the ability to actually speak and understand it, not so much. But I, I think that you would have to have passed the, you know, the equivalent of, you know, high school uh, level in Irish to, to work for the civil service, yes. Did and, you? you know, in any dealings with the government, if if you decide that you want to have those dealings in Irish, you're entitled to do that. Gotcha. Yeah, I remember hearing that, and that's part of the reason why I started learning it because I wanted to um, get deeper into what was going on from the the political science perspective yeah, yeah. within the government. Um, but the the question I want to ask you: Do you remember the TV series with the comedian who went into like middle of friggin' nowhere? Uh, in Ireland and just dropped himself into a town and yes. his goal was within a year to be able to do an entire stand-up routine in Gaelic and get the whole you know local audience to be able to laugh and understand what Des, he was talking about. Yeah. Des Bishop. Des Bishop. I have to write that down because I want to put that in the show notes and I want to rewatch those. That was, that was some oh, yeah. funny, funny stuff. Yeah. He has a, um, he, he does an Irish version of jump around. Oh Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he also did one uh, recently where he went to China and did the same thing. No way. Right. So he went and learned Chinese and did, and, you know, stand-up comedy is not a thing in China. Right. So, but he he did it. He pulled it off. And he was on TV in China. He was on, you know, it's, uh, yeah, check it out. Well, for those listening, I'm going to put that in the show notes too. But um, thank you again, Alan, for taking your time and and for, uh, you know, doing what we uh what i like to i've learned since moving to the south here we we call what we just did a hot minute after the uh the conclusion of the podcast that's definitely going to stay in but i uh i appreciate it and hope those who are listening have enjoyed enjoyed listening to the uh conversation here on the infrastructure inside of the data center and uh any concluding thoughts or words no i'm good thanks again sean for the opportunity i really appreciate it and uh, i hope people enjoy the talk. And again, I'm open if anybody wants to reach out to uh, talk about any of the subjects, I'll be happy to. Awesome. Thank you, Alan. Have a good one. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, you too. Peace. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services 
space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.